this talk today forms what I hope will be one of the first chapters in the uncom uh, in a forthcoming book on uh, the role of Arabic in Javanese public identity in Indonesia. So I'd like to begin with a uh, with an, uh, an example of an, a meeting that occurred about six months ago, November of uh, 2015. The President of the United States, Barack Obama, met with Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia in Manila on the occasion of the APEC summit. Can you all hear me? Is this um, uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit? In that meeting, Obama described how Indonesia had changed since he was a boy. From being a country that was religiously relaxed and tolerant into one that had become, as he called it, stricter and less forgiving. As evidence, he observed that more women are wearing headscarves now as a sign of their piety. Well, why did that happen? Turnbull reportedly asked. Because, Obama answered, the Saudis and other Gulf Arabs have funneled money, as well as large numbers of imams and teachers, into the country. In the 1990s, the Saudis heavily funded a Wahhabist madrasas, he said, seminaries that teach the fundamentalist version of Islam favored by the Saudi ruling family. Um, so Obama told Turnbull. Today, Islam in Indonesia, he believes, is much more Arab in orientation than it was when he lived there as a boy. Now, I want to talk about this. Um, there is indeed a considerable literature in Indonesia describing the rise of religiosity in, based on a survey conducted in the late 1970s. Tamni, for instance, a, uh, a sociologist, found that contrary to expectations, Javanese, uh, as Javanese became more educated, uh, urbanized, and worked in more bureaucratic jobs, contrary to the standard narrative of modernization, they actually became more religious, not less. Um, and Robert Hefner, most notably, has described the ways in which Javanist varieties of Islam during the same period in the 1970s and 1980s uh, were under attack by more orthodox groups in the 1980s, attacks largely coordinated by uh, the support of the modernizing government agencies. Hefner has argued, for instance, that uh, the past 20 years have witnessed, I'm quoting here, the collapse of non-standard syncretic varieties of Islam for which this sprawling Southeast Asian nation was once renowned. Javanese, the Javanese, as it's called, Abangan variety of Islam, uh, was once uh, once one of the most successful varieties of non-standard Islam uh, to have survived into the modern times, uh, larger even than the Turkey's, uh, Turkish uh, Alevis movement, has since the 1960s dramatically declined in its importance, being replaced now by uh, more orthodox varieties. So a more normative standard variety of Islam has been replaced <clears throat> has been embraced throughout most of Indonesia, including Java. Um, a comparative surveys of Muslims in the world 
has found that uh, by this one was conducted by a fellow named Riaz Hassan, a very, very large uh, Pew Memorial Trust funded study of world uh, uh, sort of Islamic revival. Um, he found that Indonesia is one of the most religiously devout countries in the entire world. Indonesians had the highest percentages worldwide of people who agreed with the statement, quote, I know that Allah exists and I have no doubts about it. They also exhibited the highest percentages of people who, pray, who said they prayed five times a day. But I want to say that it's important to be cautious in interpreting these observations. While there is some good evidence for Islamic revival in the sense of a resurgence of the intensity of religious practice, there is little, uh, <clears throat> there is little or no change. Oh, sorry, I missed a couple. Of, um, there's actually little or no change um, in the overall percentage of Muslims in Indonesian societies. You can see here, I don't know if you can see the cursor here, but you can see that the, since the 1970s, the overall percentage of Muslims in Indonesian society um, has not changed very much at all. It has hovered right around, uh, it's hovered right around 88% from 1971 up until the two, uh, the 20 teens. Um, moreover, many of the uh, impressive claims about Indonesian piety and devotion are based on surveys and self-reports. Uh, in a country where atheism is illegal and subject to prosecution. So if you are asked whether or not you believe in Allah uh, and you have no doubts about it, um, they may want to keep that in mind that it's also illegal to say no. Um, now, furthermore, many of the changes that Obama cites seem to have gotten underway much earlier than the 1990s, the period when he suggests that the Saudis um, exerted their influence. Amidst the political and economic upheavals of Indonesia's post-World War II independence years, um, this Abangan system of belief, which was syncretic, um, hybridized, uh, and localized, was also highly politicized, um, linked in various ways to a, a sort of Marhain uh, proletariat movements of the pro poor and lower classes and to the Communist Party, which was illegal after 1965. During that period, mass education was also underway for the first time in Indonesia. Um, mass education, urbanization, growing social mobility, and new media and new modes of consumption, among other things, have, had begun to uh, weaken the appeal of an Islam that was defined locally uh, while enhancing the attraction of an Islam, and I'm quoting here John Bowen, um, an Islam understood as knowledge and practices detached from any particular place. That is, they're, they're increasingly, as they become more educated, affiliated with a kind of universalizing canopy of Islamic beliefs. Okay, in this paper, what I want to do is to evaluate some of these claims. Let's see if I can 
And this is the sort of synopsis of the argument. Um, I won't be looking, however, at the changes in Islam in Java more generally, but instead I'm going to be focusing on one aspect of Islam, the representation of Islamic identity. I realize, of course, that these things overlap, um, and that while much of the experience of Islam comes to its adherence through action that can be viewed as displays and of the representations of identity, things like the wearing of headscarves, um, participation in obligatory prayers, uh, salat, fasting, tithing, the hajj, recitation of al-fatiha. Um, these actions are, not also, are also not the entirety of Islam, which also consists of forms of coherence, cultural logic, and what Talal Assad calls discursive traditions. But these symbolic acts of identity do provide concrete forms that link the subjective experience um, uh, of its adherents to larger analytical constructs. Um, just as the awareness of, uh, excuse me, just as the practice of donning a headscarf uh, in Suzanne Brenner's analysis can be linked to larger patterns of uh, a religious awareness and consciousness, or in Indonesian terms, kasadaran, which are in turn linked to even larger analytical constructs such as the Islamic revival, I want to argue that, and here's the focus, Arabic names are, a symb are symbolic constructions that for Javanese are linked not only to parents' awareness of uh, uh, the parents' own uh, experience near aspirations for a pious Muslim child, but also to larger trends of changing Islamic identity. So in this paper, I, I show that while Javanese are embracing Arabic names at historically unprecedented rates, this situation is actually considerably more complex than that statement might be taken to imply. Not only are there significant variations between different regions in Java in the rates at which they're, they're adopting these new pious names, Arabic names, but the changes are occurring in tandem with major shifts in the very representation and constitution of Javanese identity. Drawing on a data set of 3.5 million names that we have collected from three selected regencies, or Kabupaten, in the north, central, and east Java, I show that names are less and less used as markers of lower classes or labels or, or as labels of growth stages along a path to maturity in, some, in a village society, but are increasingly stable and unique identifiers in a complex national bureaucracy. Moreover, names are increasingly sensitive to features of changing political and consumer economy. Not only are names b less broadly shared among the population, that is, more, uh, people are adopting more individualized names, um, but the popularity of these increasingly individualized names is turning over with increasing rapidity, much higher volatility of the names. Finally, over the last century, Javanese names are dramatically lengthening. In they're, they're much longer than they used to be. Um, and with that, a kind of hybridization process is occurring. 
The cringeworthy phrase that's so often heard in the New York Times when quoting Indonesians, which we often hear in the New York Times, he, like many Indonesians, goes by only one name, is not only a cliche, but it's actually increasingly a thing of the past. Um, these lengthening names not only reflect an individuating and differentiating tendency in a world where it's increasingly difficult bureaucratically to change your name, um, but these longer names offer multiple hybridizing opportunities um, in which parents not only choose an Arabic name, but then add on to it a Western and a Javanese one, covering kind of all the bases as it were. So while syncretic religious practices, um, orthodox practices may indeed be in retreat, as Hefner, Obama, and others have seemed to have suggested, the amalgamation of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought expressed in the bestowal of identities through Arabic and other names in Java appears, at least in Java anyway, to be alive and well, in fact, thriving. Okay, so that's the first part of the, the talk. What I want to do now is shift gears and talk about piety and the anthropology of Javanese names talk a little bit about the context of Javanese naming practices. Okay, now keeping in mind um, that, this, that studying the Javanese and particularly Indonesian Islamic revival is difficult to pin down with some simple external objective measure, such as the percentage of Muslims in Indonesian society, how should we then approach our object of study? One way to begin is a classic kind of anthropological and ethnographic move, eliciting the terms that the local people use and find relevant to describe the phenomenon. Now, while the general term for this Islamic awakening in some way in, is sometimes described as dakwa, as the, uh, the, the, the awakening uh, or outreach of Islam, in fact, most Indonesians I've spoken to describe it in terms of rising levels of piety. When you ask why these changes are occurring that people um, th perceive, they will say um, people are becoming more pious. <clears throat> However, this immediately becomes complicated because Indonesians and Javanese in particular have several different words for describing piety. Probably the most common word to use for describing piety in, um, in Indonesia and Java in particular is uh, the Indonesian word is saleh. Um, Javanese often say shole um, or kasalehan. Uh, in Javanese, the term connotes someone whose actions are pious, such as regular mosque attendance or pilgrimages and so forth, or going to, uh, you know, ngaji. Um, other terms that are commonly used, though, are words such as takwa, uh, which refers not only to piety, but a kind of God-fearing sensibility, um, a kind of awe or God, fear or God-wearingness. Um, another word is topa, topa uh, which is repentance or consistency with a straight way, istikoma. Uh, truthfulness, uh, sincerity, ikhlas. Uh, abstention, suud. Reliance on Allah, tawakkul. Uh, surrender to Allah, taslim. Uh, good manners, adab. Love, mahabah. Remembrance, tikir, and more. 
Among the, uh, among the Javanese inclined towards Sufi practice, there's an tendency to define piety or tatwa as self-defense or avoidance. Uh, the defense consists of protecting oneself from God's punishment by performing his commands and observing his prohibition. Um, some, some of the most common ways, though, of expressing piety um, and signs of it um, include the wearing of headscarves, the attendance at mosques, voting for Islamic political parties, and as some have suggested, the cultivation of these little black calluses or balula risahita mandi on the forehead, indicating enthusiastic uh, um, uh, practice of sujud or prostration. Um, but studying any one of these indicators of piety systematically poses significant problems. While there are few uh, there are actually very few systematic broad studies of headscarves. And there's a reason for that, in that headscarves are subject to fashion winds and are also quite easy to take off. That is, some people only wear them, some women only wear them in particularly religious contexts. The minute they're out of that context, they take it off and don't wear it anymore. Um, uh, some people wear it. In it, some women wear it in a much broader context, uh, set of contexts. Attendance at mosques is also difficult to study um, because, first of all, there's no systematic records uh, of mosque attendance that certainly I'm aware of and any other scholars that I'm uh, aware of, uh, that I know are, are aware of. Um, using the vote for Islamic political parties is also difficult. Um, Bill Little and uh, Saiful Mujani have suggested that the lack of a vote for one of Indonesia's main political parties, PKS, the Prosperity and Justice Party, um, does not necessarily mean that you're not pious, just means that you, you may be pious, but you're just simply disgusted by all the um, uh, corruption scandals and uh, in PKS's case, even the porn case, um, uh, so they're not voting it uh, for this party, not out of lack of piety, but uh, be, it's a vote against PKS. Um, the forehead calluses, actually, that was kind of included uh, uh, somewhat facetiously here. They're actually pretty rare, um, uh, although increasing. And there are many people who are pious who, that, who do not seem to have them, uh, especially women. Now, uh, linguistic data, uh, such as names, uh, have certain advantages uh, as evidence of piety. First of all, they are human names are, as you know, human universals. There's never been a society anywhere ever discovered that does not name its children. Um, everybody has a name. Um, a second feature is that they're often publicly accessible. It's not that hard to get this data. Um, as we discovered uh, visiting the Office of Population in Java. Third, they're more or less stable, particularly in the modern period and modern state societies. People's names, once they get a name, um, that name is with that person for some good long period of time. And finally, in Java anyway, the bestowal of a name uh, can be and often is an indicator of the parent's wishes um, such as piety. It indicates something about wh what the parents believe um, or hope or aspire to in their children. When they, 
When you ask what parents uh, think about when they select a name for their child, they will often say that they're seeking a jinnengapik, a good name for their child. What this process of seeking a good name means obviously varies from family to family, but in general it means that the parents are seeking a name that will fit with the child and not be too heavy or abot uh, on the child. Children who are often sick or, or having problems in school are sometimes diagnosed with having kabotanjinang, or a heavy name. Several famous people, including Nukolish Majid, Chaknur, uh, or Sukarno for that matter, um, were diagnosed with this condition before they received their current names. Um, what counts as fit also depends on the parent's aspiration. If they are planning to raise a pious child, then they choose a pious name that will fit with that child. So what are the different types of Javanese names? Uh, uh, there are many books available and even websites devoted to this topic. Um, uh, but not a lot of work has been done by Western scholars on Javanese names per se. One of the more systematic analyses was done by a Dutch linguist in 1971, Ullenbeck, who carried out a structural analysis in which he classified Javanese names into two main uh, categories, uh, gender, and class. Um, most Javanese names fall into male and female. Many male names in Java uh, end in an O, like Suharto, Sukarno, Suprapto. Uh, uh, many female names end in an I, Sukarno uh, Putri, for instance. Uh, and uh, while there are a number of suffixes that often mark names as having being of lower class uh, status. Um, uh, having class markings on a Javani on, in Javanese words is, should not be a surprise to us. Javanese is a language with arguably the most elaborate system of politeness registers in the world um, that mark uh, rank differences. Um, names that end in EM or EN uh, in Java, uh, like ponium for a woman, uh, is often a mark of lower class status. These, um, now, finally, Uhlenbeck classified names along a third dimension, age status. He, here he mentions the distinction between nama alit and um, nama spu, mature names. However, this distinction only applies to males, and he does note that this distinction is beginning to fade away. Now, like many of Java Dutch scholars of his generation, Ullenbeck had little to say about the role of Arabic in Javanese. They tended to focus on a kind of idealized or Sanskritized Indic past, um, and had little to say about the contemporary historical processes that might be affecting the, uh, the system. Um, he, so one of the main ways in which the Javanese themselves uh, classify names can be characterized as broadly civilizational in terms of their civilizational origin. Um, in this perspective, names are classified in terms of their, and I note here, perceived 
um, civilizational, uh, linguistic and civilizational origin. Such um, categories include things like Javanese, Sanskrit on the one hand, Arabic, Islamic, and sort of Western Dutch names. Most Javanese have a sense of Sanskritized names as being somehow old Javanese or even just Javanese. They often don't, uh, many of the people I've spoken to, ordinary folks, don't necessarily make a distinction uh, between uh, Javanese and Sanskritized names. So if you have a child named Arjuna or something like that, um, it, they might say, oh, that's a Namajawa, uh, even though its origin is uh, Sanskrit. Um, uh, Arabic and Arabic-sounding names fall under a category of Nama Arab or Janang Arab. A number of these names are, may in fact not be Arabic. Uh, many of them are actually Persian, but are nonetheless considered Nama Arab or Janang Arab. A key point here is that Arabic names, though, for when they are bestowed, are by definition, for most Javanese, considered uh, Muslim names. With, unlike, unlike with Western names, Javanese would not take on an Arab name for secular reasons. For most Javanese, there is no such thing as a secular Arab, Arabic name. The bestowal and use of an Arabic name is always associated with Muslim piety. In contrast, op, uh, adopting a Western name is not always associated with Christianity. If you would give a child a name like Johnny or or uh, it is not necessarily the case that you assume that that kid is Christian. Um, uh, Indonesian Christians very rarely, if ever, adopt Arabic names. It's very rare to find a Christian uh, boy, for instance, named Muhammad. Um, now, there are many Western names, Namabarat, some of which directly originate from the period of Dutch colonialism, but many are not. The bestowal of Western-style uh, first names is followed sometimes by a number of surnames, um, sometimes Javanese-sounding, sometimes indexing particular Chinese names, and it may, in fact, signal one's identity as, uh, as Chinese. For parents, though, in general, the bestowal of a Western name is often associated with a kind of cosmopolitan educational and socioeconomic aspirations. An important constraint on choosing names is the context of these, uh, at least was in the past, the context of the soan, or literally visit, um, in which they, the parents come and ask for advice about what to name this uh, child that um, uh, the mother is pregnant with. Um, the parents, uh, perhaps grandparents, may pay a visit to a respected elder, elder um, uh, in a village. Um, oops. And, uh, and ask for advice. Uh, they may, if they, particularly if they don't know Arabic well, which most Javanese are certainly not fluent in it, um, uh, they may consult with a takmir or a teacher uh, and ask for advice on this. Um, now, one of the major changes that is occurring now in Java is the widespread availability of baby name books in bookstores and uh, the widespread availability of uh, internet websites that are available to consult with uh, on baby names. Um, so, 
To examine these changing tastes in names, we collected 3.5 million names in total, a little more than 1 million names from each of the three regencies in the Javanese-speaking area of the island of Java. These uh, three regencies correspond to um, three, you can see here an old map of the uh, regencies of, uh, the old Dutch regencies of Java. Um, we chose uh, an area in the Jokjakarta area, a regency called Bantul. Um, the, in the north coast, which is corresponded to the Dutch uh, regency of uh, Pasisir, um, we chose the regency of Lamongan. And then in, the, uh, in East Java, uh, Jawa Timur, we chose the regency of Lumajang. Um, and uh, so we got spreadsheets that contain not only the names of the individuals in the regencies, but their dates of birth, their occupations, their levels of education, and parents' names and other valuable information. And we, since we were not about to code 3.5 million names by hand, um, we enlisted the support of a, uh, of a Javanese software engineer who was able to uh, devise a clever program where utilizing uh, about a small sample of about 40,000 names that we'd already manually coded and was able to kind of iteratively teach that software program to help us code the names. And we were able to code uh, all but about 7% of these names. So as I mentioned before, one of the dominant trends that we found is that there's a marked trend towards the adoption of Arabic um, or Arabic hybrid names beginning in about the 1970s. And there, but this uh, trend occurs at the expense of Javanese names, okay? So in the courtly uh, royal court area of uh, Mataraman or the sort of Jokjakarta area in Bantul, um, what we see here is that um, the pure Arabic names actually start out fairly low but then around the 90s and 2000s begin to spike upwards. But what really spikes upwards are Arabic hybrid names uh, the, in the red. And what declines, what declines dramatically are the names in the green, which are pure Javanese names. Okay? Um, so this is in the courtly area, but note how, how uh, relatively few pure Arabic names there are in comparison to this coastal area of uh, Lamongan, the Pasisir region, where um, they names start out at about 40% um, and pretty much remain at 40% throughout the whole period uh, for the whole century. But what spikes upward dramatically at a beginning in about the 70s are the Arabic hybrid names and Javanese names represent a tiny minority uh, by the 20 teens, okay? Um, the Ujung Timur or the, um, the East uh, Java Timur, East Javanese area uh, represented by Lumajang shows a similar profile to, um, uh, to Lamongan. Uh, well, the other major trend though that we uncovered was um, the dramatic decline of um, uh, of class-marked names. Uh, Javanese appear to define uh, predictions, although they, uh, Javanese appear to defy the predictions about secularization by adapting Arabic, adopting Arabic or religious names, 
They also follow a common pattern um, in the U United States of, of, uh, and in Western Europe of, uh, of uh, rejecting names that have close associations with social class. But they also, um, uh, and you can see here that there's a dramatic decline in those uh, class mark names to the point where now there's, there, uh, there's almost no babies being given names that end in that suffix em or en. Um, the other thing that happens that the Javanese correspond to a pattern found in Western Europe and the United States and in, um, in many parts of Asia is that there's a dramatic rise in unique names um, and a consequent decline of names that are shared amongst the group. Um, uh, Javanese, like many other people, uh, many other uh, groups experiencing a kind of modernization trend, uh, tend to opt for more and more unique names for their children. Um, uh, so what this, this graph measures is basically an answer to the question, what is the percentage of the population that has a name that is, belongs only to one person? And you can see here that it's dramatically on the rise. A large number of the names belong to only one person. Cor um, the corollary, um, see if, yeah, the corollary is that the concentration of names, the number of names that are shared with a, across a group of people, uh, is declining. Um, the number of people whose names fall into the top 20, um, the percentage of the population. Um, is declining. So as continuity, um, so yeah, as um, another key finding though is that these names are increasingly subject to uh, the vicissitudes of fashion and trends. Um, in this slide what we're um, trying to measure is how fast or how slow are fashion trends changing. If things were changing slowly you'd expect the uh, top 20 names to be the same in this, uh, to have the same number of names in each, what we call, the five-year periods are called lustrums, uh, from each lustrum to lustrum. But in fact, that's not happening. Um, that continuity level is declining. The corollary to that, uh, oh, actually, this is another one that shows that um, uh, uh, male names are changing at about the same rate uh, even, perhaps even more steeply than female names, the turnover. Um, and oh, just to finish up on the, this fashion, it's um, uh, the continuity is the flip side of the volatility measure. Um, names are become the point. The takeaway point is that names are increasingly subject to the sort of whims of fashion, as people become sort of more oriented towards a, a kind of consumer economy. Um, another uh, piece of evidence of a taste-oriented uh, name selection process, um, it's interesting that uh, in the uh, beginning in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the names uh, that begin for males uh, beginning with Sioux were very popular. Um, and it continues through much of the new order with Sioux Harto and Sioux Carno and so forth. 
But as the, as the uh, New Order administration became increasingly unpopular, you can see here that uh, in the 80s, and particularly in the 90s, it, the, the popularity of names beginning with Sue really seems to decline. Um, another thing that happens is as Indonesians become more educated over the course of the, um, uh, of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the standardization of, of the spellings of a name like Muhammad become much more regularized. So while in these early periods there were names like Mat, Ahmad, uh, Muhammad, uh, Muhammad, uh, by uh, the um, 80s and 90s it becomes all standardized to Muhammad. Now, back to the sort of central argument, though, though those other points do support the, 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 the initial claim of uh, increasing hybridity. The, one of the main processes that we've uncovered here is that the mean, mean word length of names is going up. And not up just a little bit. It's going up dramatically. The number um, uh, one word names are declining dramatically. And by, by the last few decades, we're seeing um, average word length um, is three to four names for a baby in, in Java, which is quite striking given that 40, 50 years ago it was only one. Okay? Um, another thing that what are people doing with those, that, uh, all that extra space in the naming category? Well, one of the things that they're doing is not necessarily adding more um, Arabic words, they're in the fastest growing category of these uh, names is in fact hybrid Arabic and other names, names that are one Arabic word plus a Javanese plus a, a Western uh, word. Um, so what we see here, for instance, in the courtly area of Bantul, um, pure Arabic is going up pretty dramatically around the 80s and 90s. Um, but the, uh, in, in a way, the longest and a sort of more sustained uh, and higher trajectory of, uh, of growth is in uh, hybrid Arabic names. Now here in uh, the North Coast, um, the number of pure Arabic names is actually relatively stable at about 40% as we saw earlier, but the fastest growing, again, um, uh, category of names is in uh, hybrid names, and you see a similar, uh, there's a somewhat similar pattern in, uh, in the uh, Lamogan for uh, females, and the, where, but you see even a faster growth in hybridity. Um, in uh, Lumajang, in the um, uh, East Coast, uh, the hybrid names start out much lower, but uh, they begin to uh, join the um, uh, level of pure Arabic names, um, and in fact, in uh, for the males, uh, females, the pure uh, hybrid names overtake the uh, pure Arabic names by about the 1990s. Okay, so what what can we conclude from this? The um, uh, I realize, first of all, I'm sorry for this dizzying array of charts and graphs, but um, some of the takeaways are that 
in the context of Obama's and much of the policy community's conviction that Java has become Wahhabist and normative and universalizing, it's striking that if one turns one's attention to linguistic data, uh, specifically naming data, a rather different picture emerges. Not only do we find that there's an embrace of plural varieties of name types, but hybrid forms of Arabic are the fastest growing name type. Um, now, uh, from looking at these graphs, one might get the impression that this kind of hybridity is something unprecedented and new. But in fact, in Indonesia, there is a long uh, history of using hybrid language forms to evoke trans-regional connections in religious contexts. In indigenous forms of ritual speech, this parallelistic forms of, of ritual speech that have probably been around in Java, I mean, in, in the Indonesian archipelago more generally for 2,000, maybe 3,000 years, uh, they typically employ dialect variation as a resource for describing their environments, perhaps not unlike the ways in which uh, uh, Javanese parents are drawing on regional variety, re or um, foreign varieties of language and naming practices. Also, um, uh, many of the classical literary forms of Indonesian uh, uh, literature drew on uh, hybrid varieties of language to evoke the sort of larger Nusantara. Van Anderson has argued that the Indonesian national language, Bahasa Indonesia, draws on local vernaculars to evoke this context of a, of a sort of non-local trans-regional uh, nation of Indonesia. Okay. So, um, although there are significant continuities with the hybridizing impulses in the past of ritual speech registers, though, these hybridizing and syncretizing tendencies in Javanese Arabic today seem to be particularly focused on naming practices, while the grammatical, textual, and orthographic aspects of Arabic are actually becoming more purist and orthodox. This focus on naming seems to evoke multiple options for personal and social identification in a plural and globalizing world. Someone named Johnny Ahmad Suprianto, for instance, Western, Arabic, and Javanese names, is actually not an uncommon name for someone in contemporary Java. Okay. So, in summary here, until the 1960s, most Javanese could be considered abangan, or sort of syncretic Muslims. Um, but with education, economic development, a more normative, non-local, trans-regional varieties of Islam have become popular. But syncretism is alive and well. By looking at names and other linguistic data, we can see that while orthodoxy and religious practice is now widespread, hybrid ways of expressing identity are on the rise and e indeed rising dramatically. Thank you very much. <laughs>